Welcome into another edition of Home Field Advantage. My name is Will Highland and I am the host of this podcast. Today is January 22nd, 2019. It is a frigid Tuesday afternoon here in New England. Temperatures well below freezing and sometimes sub-zero, so it is definitely cold, but the sports takes, as you know, on this show are always hot. So I appreciate you listening to this fifth episode, I believe, of Home Field Advantage. We are excited to be off and running today. Uh, last time I spoke to you, the audience was before the AFC and NFC Championship games in uh, the NFL playoffs, and it was also prior to me going to Winter Weekend and having some revelations about the region as a whole this weekend if you combine both what I witnessed at Winter Weekend and what I witnessed in the AFC Championship game in particular and the aftermath of that game and the reaction of that game. So we have a lot to get to on the show in a small amount of time, so I'm going to do my best to get through these things first. Actually, the first topic I want to speak to you about today is the NFC title game, which happened in the early slot on Sunday afternoon. Taken a day, a full day, to digest what's happened in both of these games, but it seems as if the NFC title game was the more controversial game in terms of officiating and the ultimate outcome. A lot of people are up in arms about the non-pass interference call on third down, down in the red zone that the Saints uh, were not benefited with that call, which resulted in a field goal, the subsequent tie by the Rams, and the ultimate win from the Los Angeles Rams in overtime, which marked the first loss in the New Orleans Superdome that both Sean Payton and Drew Brees had experienced together as a duo. The Rams played extremely well throughout the game, and I believe that the Saints did as well, but it came down to the last five minutes or so and the overtime period, and the Rams pulled it out so they will be representing the NFC in the Super Bowl. Now, a lot of people are a little bit upset about the call that was not made. Uh, I believe it was Roby Andrews and... um, Tommy Lee Lewis, where this occurred, uh, Drew Brees threw a ball to the right sideline. Uh, It looked as if the defender hit the receiver early before the ball got there while it was on its way. Uh, He hit him helmet to helmet, which seemed like it should be a penalty in and of itself, but it was clearly pass interference. It was not called, and the Saints had to kick a field goal early. Now, a lot of points have been made about this, uh, about how it could or would have changed the outcome of the game. Obviously, it had a huge swing in terms of momentum and in terms of the likelihood of scoring and taking a lead of some sort. A lot of criticism has also gone on Sean Payton in terms of his play calling leading up to that, following the big uh, connection between Drew Brees and Ted Ginn Jr., It looked like the Saints were going to win that game easily. I remember I turned to my fiancé and I said, the game's over. There's clearly not a chance that the Saints are going to run the ball out and not be able to score. 
excuse me, run the clock out and not be able to score. It looks like they're down in field goal range already, but that's not what happened. Sean Payton decided to throw the ball. It was an incompletion that stopped the clock. They did one small run before the third down in which Drew Brees failed to connect to Tommy Lee Lewis. A lot of people have looked to that coaching decision by Sean Payton and said, hey, look, the Rams could have scored with less time on the clock if they had called better plays. Excuse me, the Saints had would be able to score with less time remaining had they called better plays. That's true, um, but I think what's getting lost in this debate is that both things can be true. It's not one or the other. It's not only that Sean Payton had poor play calling, and it's not only that the Saints did not get the benefit of that blatant pass interference call, which I believe is the worst non-call in the history of pro football. Both of those things can be true. The Saints clearly did not capitalize on their field position and the fact that the Rams only had one timeout. They clearly didn't capitalize on that. Drew Brees is one of the most clutch quarterbacks of all time. He's one of the most successful quarterbacks of all time. He's not obviously in the same category as somebody like Tom Brady or Peyton Manning or Joe Montana, but he's in the category of an all-time great quarterback, especially in this era. There was no reason why they shouldn't have won that game, given their field position. So I agreed that the play calling by Sean Payton was a little too aggressive, which if you remember last show, I said was going to be a determinant of the winner of the game, is that somebody is going to try and make too many calls uh, on the play sheet. And I believed it would have been Sean McVay, given that he's younger and less experienced. I believe he would have made a fatal flaw when it came to a play call. But instead, it was Sean Payton who was a little bit too aggressive. So yes, that had an impact on the outcome of the game. However, the call that was not made would have created a first and goal scenario for the Saints in which they likely would have scored a touchdown. If they didn't score a touchdown, they would have still probably run the clock down to under a minute at least and kicked a field goal, which would have given Jared Goff and the Rams a very, very low probability chance of going down and scoring. But because they kicked a field goal with time remaining on the clock, the Rams were given an opportunity to go down and tie the game themselves. And let's not fail to give credit to Greg Zerline, the Rams kicker, who made two unbelievable kicks. One, a 48-yarder to win it, and the second, a 57, excuse me, one, a 48-yarder to tie it, and one, a 57-yarder to win it. So let's not take credit away from him either. But it's hard to say that the Saints would not have scored either a touchdown or at least a field goal with little time remaining if they were given a first and goal at the one-yard line. So both things can be true. Ultimately, there's little to know that you can do about it now. I know that Michael Thomas and others, especially Sean Payton being the head coach, have talked about filing a lawsuit, and I know that a civil suit is being filed right now. But there's little that the NFL is going to do about this. Uh, One thing I believe that should happen is somebody should be held accountable for that poor call. The referees should face some sort of punishment for obviously failing to make the correct call. I believe that if the league is going to talk about how it cares about player safety, 
that they need to penalize plays like that. And if they're going to call plays like that as penalties all year long, they should definitely do it in the last two or three minutes of a conference title game. So somebody should be held accountable. I don't think the NFL is going to go back and redo the game or redo the last few minutes of the game. That seems like something that is very outlandish and very unlikely to happen because basically the NFL would be admitting that they were wrong and that their officials were wrong. And I don't think they're going to publicly throw their officials under the bus, and I don't think they're going to admit fault. This is a league led by Roger Goodell that doesn't like to admit that they're wrong. So I don't think that's going to happen. Even though they would make a ton of money off of a re um, rematch, so to speak, or a redo of the final few minutes, they would not... Um, they would not do that because it would tarnish their reputation. So those are my two cents on the end of this game. Ultimately, I don't agree with the New Orleans newspaper headline, which says that the Super Bowl matchup is now tainted. I do not agree with that. Uh, I think officiating played too much of a role in AFC and NFC title game weekend, but I don't believe that the it that the outcomes made the upcoming Super Bowl matchup tainted in any way. I just don't believe that. Um, I think that there's no way you can know for certain what would have happened given that outcome if it had been changed, so I don't think it will be changed uh, or given the opportunity to be changed. I just think there's too many variables at hand. I see the only way of them deciding to redo the last few minutes would be if somehow the win probability before, during, or after the penalty if it had been called, would have drastically changed the outcome. But even that is a win probability, which isn't always 100% accurate. It's actually never 100% accurate until the end of the game. Patriots fans should know that in particular because of the Miami miracle, which went against their favor, and the Super Bowl 51 comeback, which went for their favor in terms of win probability. So like I said, those are my thoughts on the NFC title game. It was not as good as I thought, ultimately. I thought it would be more of an exciting shootout. I thought it would be more like what the AFC title game was, which is ultimately too bad because I think that Rams-Saints matchup had a lot of promise, and in my opinion, it was overshadowed by the officiating. And I believe the same thing about the AFC title game. I think it was overshadowed by just officiating, I think, I tweeted out during the fourth quarter that officiating had taken over the game and it had been bad on both sides. I think that both the Patriots and the Chiefs benefited and um, were subject to calls or non-calls that uh, swayed the game. Uh, I believe that in the Patriots and Chiefs matchup, there were less blatant ones and more subjective ones. And I believe that they were in less crucial situations because ultimately when push came to shove in overtime, it was Tom Brady and the Patriots offense that took over that game. They completed three third downs en route to the Rex Burkhead touchdown, which won them the game. Uh, Which leads to another question about the ethics of overtime. Uh, That seems to be a topic of conversation as well this week, given that somehow it's now an issue that the Patriots won via overtime, given that they 
won the coin toss and elected to receive the ball and won outright with a touchdown. That's suddenly an issue now. It was never an issue in any other of the playoff games that were won with a touchdown on the first possession of overtime. I guess that's only a problem when the Patriots win. I believe that the critics might have forgotten that about four hours earlier, the Rams had beaten the Saints in overtime after not winning the coin toss and not getting the ball uh, first. So I'm not even going to entertain anything beyond that argument. When it comes to the actual X's and O's of the Patriots' victory over the Chiefs, I believe it was the signature road victory of Tom Brady's career. And I believe that the running game that the Patriots established early on and the difference in time of possession, especially in the first half, was the key to victory for the Patriots. It's unbelievable the time of possession was almost 44 minutes to 21 minutes. That's insane. The Patriots ran, uh, I believe, 94 plays, and the Chiefs ran 47. So the Patriots dominated the line of scrimmage. They were able to convert on third downs very effectively, which, if you remember last week, I said was the key to victory, or one of the four keys to victory for the Patriots. They were 13 of 19 on third down, and the Chiefs were only four out of nine. Um, So, like I said, the third down efficiency played a huge role in the impact of the outcome. And for the Patriots, I believe that beyond the line of scrimmage, they just absolutely dominated offensively through most of the game. Obviously, there was a missed opportunity in the first half when Tom Brady threw an interception uh, attempting to hit Rob Gronkowski in the end zone. That was obviously a missed opportunity. But if you look at the total yards, New England had 524 yards and Kansas City only at 290. That's almost 2-1. to one. The Patriots out first down the Chiefs 2-1. to one. They out scored the Chiefs only by a touchdown. And they t- out time of possession to the Chiefs by about 2-1. to one. And they also... Um, outplayed the Chiefs in terms of number of plays, like I said, 94 to 47. So in three phases, in almost four, they were able to double up what the Chiefs were able to do offensively. That is huge. That was probably the main determinant of victory for the Patriots, is the their ability to keep Patrick Mahomes off the field. And then for the Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes, even though they were able to score very, very quickly at times, they were unable to sustain long drives. They were unable to keep Tom Brady off the field enough for that offense to uh, get out of rhythm. It seemed like the Patriots were always on the field and the Kansas City defense was always uh, trying to stop them for pretty much the whole first half in a good chunk of the fourth quarter especially, uh, and all of overtime. So it looked like to me that Patrick Mahomes and his offense were at times unable to stay on the field. There there were times in the first half where they went three and out, I believe, twice. And then also they went all the way down the field and took a sack in field goal range, which knocked them out of field goal range. So they were unable to score at all in the first half. And what really symbolized the first half was Tom Brady throwing a touchdown pass to Philip Dorsett uh, with about a minute to go, maybe a little bit over a minute in the first half, and then the Chiefs subsequently getting the ball and taking a sack. Patrick Mahomes, to me, looked like he got away with a lot of lucky throws, like I've been saying about him all year long, 
And I believe that ultimately when the pass rush got to him, he was unable to make the plays that we had seen him make over the course of the NFL season. So for the Patriots, it was a really impressive victory. It was a, like I said, signature road victory for Tom Brady and the Patriots. And it was exactly what they needed to prove. All year long, they had struggled on the road. They had struggled to win in places that they really shouldn't have, like Tennessee and Jacksonville. They had really struggled to close games, like, uh, for example, in Miami and in Pittsburgh. And this was a problem going into the playoffs when a lot of people said that they didn't seem as mentally tough as they had been in years past, and that was ultimately going to be a detriment to them uh, in terms of success in the playoffs. And for me, what I saw on Sunday night was a team that was extremely mentally tough and a team that was extremely ready to play and ready to be prepared for anything. If you look at the things that the Chiefs wanted to do, which was establish um, some sort of passing game with Travis Kelsey and Tyree Kill, given that the Patriots' secondary is not the greatest in the world, still underrated in my opinion, but obviously not anything like we've seen in the past with the Patriots. But they, they gave up really two big passing plays, one to Tyree Kill and one to Sammy Watkins. If you take those away, the Chiefs barely got over 200 passing yards. So they really played well in terms of eliminating Tyree Kill. He had one catch for 42 yards. Travis Kelsey, who a lot of people thought was going to be a matchup problem, three catches for 23 yards and that one touchdown. That one touchdown was a 12-yard touchdown and the other two catches combined for nine yards. One was a shovel pass. Travis Kelsey was non-existent in the offensive scheme for the Kansas City Chiefs. Tyreek Hill, one catch, 42 yards. The Patriots took away what the Chiefs were supposed to do well. They did not let Tyreek Hill run all, all over them like they had in Week 6. There was no Kareem Hunt to run right through the Patriots' linebacking core, right through the secondary there was no Kareem Hunt out of the backfield. Damien Williams, who a lot of people believe would be similar to Tyreek Hill and give the Patriots problems. He had five catches for 66 yards and two touchdowns, and he was really the only performer on the Chiefs that lived up expectations. Patrick Mahomes, phenomenal quarterback all year long. He was 16 of 31 for 295. Yeah, he had three touchdowns. They all came in the second half. You can point to the fact that the Patriots' defense did not perform as well in the second half as they did in the first. They allowed 31 points in the second half, almost similar to what happened in Week 6. But in the first half, they held the Chiefs scoreless. We're talking about one of the most prolific offenses in NFL history, and they didn't score a point in the first half at home in the AFC title game. That's the difference in the game, folks. If the Patriots hadn't played that well defensively in the first half, they would have been the ones playing catch-up. And they would have been the ones that struggled to win the game. In the way it was going, folks, yeah, you're right. If Patrick Mahomes gets the ball to begin overtime, maybe they do go down and score a touchdown to win the game. But you can't deny the fact that the Patriots' defense 
played exceptionally well in the first half, and that the Patriots dominated the line of scrimmage offensively in the first half as well. So even though it was a barn burner in one of the most exciting games of the NFL season, the Patriots did exceed expectations. Did anybody think that they were going to be up like they were at halftime and that they would dominate the time of possession in the first half like they did? I didn't. But that's exactly what happened. And to me, personally, that's the reason why they won the game. They made plays in the first half and they were ready for the game. The lights looked a little too bright for Patrick Mahomes in the first half. They weren't the quick score offense that we had seen all year. That was the Patriots, who on the first drive of the game looked like world beaters. It was the Patriots who converted three third down conversions on the final drive. And when it comes to the officiating, like I said, it was 50-50. There were missed calls all over the place. There were gifts to both teams. Travis Kelsey got breathed on by J.C. Jackson in the end zone and received a pass interference penalty. The same thing happened to Philip Dorsett, and they called him for offensive P.I. rather than holding on the defense. The Julian Edelman almost muffed punt? Sure, that was a mistake by him. But there was no definitive camera angle that showed that he touched the ball, and so ultimately there was enough evidence to overturn that call. The roughing the passer penalty on Tom Brady? Sure, it was soft. But was it any softer than the the pass interference call that was on J.C. Jackson down the sideline? No. So yeah, the refs were 50-50. It was not a great week for NFL officiating. And like I said, I believe that they took over the game and really took away from the excitement of both games. So it's upsetting, but it's just the way it is. And as we head into the Super Bowl, we're going to talk a lot about the X's and O's leading into the Rams-Patriots. I believe it's going to be very exciting. We're going to have an episode probably on Friday and then another one next week leading into the Super Bowl. And it's going to be very exciting. Uh, It's going to be probably a high-scoring affair and probably one of the more um, exciting coaching matchups that we've seen in recent years with the young Sean McVay versus the veteran Bill Belichick. I think that will be great. We'll get to all that later, but let's all be certain when we hope that the officiating does not take a huge role in the Super Bowl, because the NFL doesn't like this. They don't like the fact that instead of talking about the phenomenal Super Bowl coming up that we're going to have, that we're still stuck in the rut talking about the failures of the officials in the NFC and AFC title game. Thankfully, for the Patriots... And as a Patriots fan, it did not help or hurt us too much where I believe that it would be tainted in terms of the outcome, which I said earlier. But as a whole, just not a great look for the NFL in officiating. And let's see if they put as much of an emphasis on player safety and offensive and defensive pass interference after what happened last Sunday. Let's see if that changes, and let's see if that becomes reviewable next season. I hope not. I think as much as NFL officiating is human error, we don't need to turn everything into instant replay because that will water down the game. But that's a discussion for another day. The last thing I want to get to is I did attend Red Sox Winter Weekend at Foxwoods Casino this past uh, weekend. 
in uh, Mashantucket, Connecticut. It was a phenomenal experience. Again, the Red Sox do a phenomenal job with that game, like I said uh, in the past episode. And to me, it's just a perfect example of ways in which fan bases can come together and sports can bring people together. But I do have one critique. The first critique is I attended the Red Sox game show, which is an event that they have where coaches and players take part in a game that is hosted by the Red Sox public address announcer, and it's really to entertain the fans, and it's a great time. I loved it. But they did a game in which they had players try and recite the town names in Massachusetts that are obviously very hard to pronounce, and these are ones like Shituit, which I probably just butchered, Chicopee, Peabody, Billerica, other towns throughout Massachusetts that are hard to pronounce. So that's all entertaining. But since when did Massachusetts get to own the rights to having hard town names to pronounce? I think every state in America has town names that are hard to pronounce. The largest city in New Mexico is Albuquerque. If you looked at that as a 5th grader or a 6th grader or even as an adult and you tried to spell that, you'd probably say something like Albuquerque. You know, it's, it's not solely Massachusetts that has hard names to pronounce. Yes, a lot of it comes from Native American heritage that is in Massachusetts in the Northeast, but there are Native American towns and rivers all over the country that are named after Native American names for landforms or tribes or establishments or root words. The river in my hometown is pronounced Pasagasawakig. I didn't learn how to say that correctly until I was 17. So the idea that Massachusetts gets to own this is kind of stupid because, like I said, every state has towns, rivers, mountains, counties that are hard to pronounce. And the reason why I say that Massachusetts doesn't get to own this is because it seems like a lot of times they get the credit for it. Kind of like they get the credit for Dunkin' Donuts, even though I believe it was established in Rhode Island. It seems like Massachusetts gets the credit for the Patriots when, yes, they have the stadium there, but they're the New England Patriots. It's the same thing. Like, I love New England. The state of Massachusetts is great, but they're not the only ones with hard names to pronounce. And the reason I say this again is because the game show had state-themed games for each of the six New England states. Vermont's was an egg on a spoon race. New Hampshire's was a cotton candy making contest uh, to celebrate Canopy Lake Park. Maine was a lobster toss um, into a with a lacrosse stick into a lobster trap. So that was pretty entertaining. And then Rhode Island's was a horse race with inflatable horses. And Connecticut's was a pop-up shot game with basketballs to celebrate the UConn basketball teams. And then Massachusetts was the word game with the pronunciations of the towns. So basically we're giving Massachusetts credit for that, which is fine, I guess, but I'm just saying they're not the only state in America with names that are hard to pronounce. That's all. And lastly, I'll just say this, even though I just criticized the state of Massachusetts, I also believe that the six states that we have minus Western Connecticut are all New England, we all share the same values. So yes, 
I might critique Massachusetts once in a while, but given that it has such become that new, it seems like it's New England versus the rest of the country, especially in football, I'll take it and I'll side with them any day of the week, even though I'm a manier. Except when it comes to the road, they still don't know how to drive. Which reminds me that given all of this talk about the Patriots and the dynasty and all of this hate that the Patriots have received over the past years for always making it to the Super Bowl, I'll gladly take New England versus the rest of the country when it comes to anything, including football. Give me clam chowder and lobster rolls. Give me lighthouses and beaches. Give me the mountains of New Hampshire and Western Maine. Give me the cheese and Ben and Jerry's of Vermont. Give me the, well, really nothing about Connecticut, sorry. And give me the, uh, yeah, Rhode Island, nothing there either. Eh, well, just just give me the four northern states and sorry about the south. I'm just kidding. I think that New England is a special place and that we have the best football team in the history of the NFL and in the history of the world, and I think we have the best quarterback in the history of the NFL and the world. But I try to stay objective, like I said on Twitter, during the game, but for this podcast, I'll try and do the same. Although when it comes to recognizing the GOAT, I have a hard time not rooting alongside Tom Brady, given that there seems to still be people out there, despite what happened on Sunday, who believe that he's not the greatest of all time. And I think you have a serious debate for that. However, that is for another day. Again, I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Home Field Advantage. I know it was a short one compared to the previous ones, and I know that it was very football-centric, but like I said, hopefully we can develop some baseball talk on here and some hockey talk, although with the Patriots in the Super Bowl and a very intriguing Super Bowl coming up, that probably won't happen until afterward. But again, I appreciate your listenership, and I hope you have a great rest of your week, and we'll see you on Friday afternoon for our next episode. Thanks. Have a good one.